We're continuing our study in Matthew, so why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We have some loose ends to pick up as we've been kind of hit and miss because of the Christmas holidays and uh, we missed last Wednesday, uh, but it was great having the whole team uh, and volunteers, everybody be able to take a little bit of time off because the month of December was crazy around here. And, uh, so it's, but it is good to be back in our stride, but there's some, some stuff that we need to pick up and so we'll do that tonight. Hopefully we'll get through chapter 19, maybe even into 20, we'll see how it goes. But book of Matthew, um, a few things to kind of keep in mind is the book of Matthew is written for the Jewish people. It's, it's almost like if you could say it's the gospel for the Jews. And we'll show you as we get into the other gospels, we're gonna do even more and more of a comparative study between the, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we'll do that. But just for now, understand that, um, you know, the book of Matthew should be sort of uh, things that in some ways we Gentiles might miss. Um, but if you're looking deeply, you can kind of be shocked at some of the things that might be tucked in here. Um, one of the things I, I sort of mentioned that I might be able to cover a little more in depth, um, uh, but I, I really didn't do that. And so I was thinking, are you guys up for a little Brainiac stuff tonight? I mean, I'm not really good at Brainiac stuff, but um, I, I want to do something a little bit because I did, I did sort of uh, mention it and I, I thought maybe we'd give it a whirl on you guys. But, um, but kind of reviewing, remember we just left off with, um, you know, in, in chapter, uh, you know, 18, 17, 18, we, we were talking about kind of that humility, childlike faith, like faith. And Jesus came, you know, to seek and save the lost. Go, he, he would leave the 99 and go after the one. And, um, and then we left off in chapter, you know, 18, um, where Jesus talked about forgiveness. And that was a huge thing, you know, to forgive others of their sins. And it's that whole thing where, you know, Peter said, Jesus, how often should we forgive our brother? You know, seven times. And then Jesus said 70 times seven. And we talked briefly about you. And I gave you sort of the Reader's Digest answer to why he said 70 times seven. And, and that is that some scholars, and I, I, I'm not gonna say I disagree with these scholars, but they would say that, well, it was just a huge number. And if you do 70, 70 times seven, is it 490 times and then you forgive someone? And I left it off kind of like, well, the implication is to continually keep forgiving. It's not that you count the 490 times and then chalk them off after 490 sins. Remember the neighbor and the garbage can illustration I gave? But the reason I wanted to dive back into that a little bit is there is something that the Jewish listener would probably perk up their ears to Jesus saying 70 times seven. Um, because... The number, you know how you have numbers in your life and you hear those numbers, it's kind of like, hey, that was my old phone number or that was my old address or that's my birthday or my anniversary. Like there's numbers or your old football number. You know, if you see a certain number, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, they're recognizable. Well, to the Jew, believe it or not, 490, it actually meant a lot. And it had deep meaning that you and I as Gentiles don't really um, know. And I, I wanted to sort of dive in and, and show you sort of why that is and what the big deal with the number 490 and what it, what it actually is about. And, and so let's do that. It's not just an arbitrary number, um, but to the Jew, it would grab their attention. Um, and, and especially because of um, their history, the Jewish history, 490 comes up quite a bit. Um, now, if you're thinking already, if you've been at Eighth Degree for any length of time, 490 will make you remember uh, a time period that's really important in biblical prophecy. Um, but actually, it also has much to do with biblical history. So before we get into the biblical prophecy one, I actually wanna uh, mention it. And, and I'm just gonna give you kind of the quicker version of this, but there was a guy who did a bunch of work on this. His name was um, Clarence Larkin. Back in 1919, he wrote a book on the book of Daniel, sort of a commentary on the book of Daniel, and uh, was quite an astute, sharp guy. But he uh, sort of pointed out uh, what some of the old rabbis and Jewish instructors used to teach about the number 490 times. And then, and then he sort of helped us Gentiles with the math of why 490 is important. And it has to do with time periods in Jewish history. So if you're taking notes, you can maybe jot this down. The first 490 that you should be aware of in, in uh, you know, Israel's history is from Abraham to the Exodus. And, um, and again, this is gonna be interesting. You have to do a little bit of math here. Basically the promise, um, when, when God gave the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse four, Abraham was 75 years old. 
So from the, the birth of Abraham, there was kind of a, a new era kicked into is, you know, Israel's history because they began with Abraham. When Abraham was born, the stopwatch begins on, on sort of a time frame here that we should know about. So you got uh, 75 years. Then in Galatians chapter three, um, and uh, verse 17, uh, we're told, uh, you can look it up. It says, you know, this I say that the covenant was confirmed before God, the law, which was 430 years after the covenant was made with Abraham. So from Abraham to, the, to Moses uh, was this 430 years. And so you add those together, you say, okay, 505 years, whatever. But one of the things the Bible does, and you can read this in Genesis 16, 16, also Genesis 21, uh, verse five. Um, what's interesting about those scriptures is it kind of counts the, the years where Abraham, remember when Je, um, Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael may live. And he wanted Ishmael to be the promised child. But in, in a sense, it wasn't until Abraham gave that harebrained idea up and he gave up on Ishmael as being the promised child of God. And that's when God gave them, uh, you know, Isaac as truly the promised child. And so the Jews and the rabbis would teach that those 17, or pardon me, those 15 years uh, were not um, really gonna count in uh, this time period. Uh, and and they, they minus those from the time of Israel history because of the rebellion, uh, really, of Abraham with Isaac, uh, Ishmael, pardon me. So when you do that, you've got this 490 year period that the Jews marked and noted, 490 years. The second time period uh, is maybe even a little more confusing, especially if you do the math. Uh, you have to do a lot of math. I'm just giving you the high points of this. But from the Exodus then to the temple period um, is also technically 490 years. Now, here's the math on that. And this is where, again, um, we get some of this information. Uh, you know, if you, if you really wanna look at it, read Clarence Larkin's book. It's available online, by the way. But Exodus to the temple. Um, so basically from the Exodus, um, to the start of the building of the temple uh, would be 591 years. And you get that from Acts. There's actually two scriptures there, Acts 13. You have to kind of go to what the book of Acts says and compare it with 1 Kings chapter 6, verse one and do a little math there. I'm, I'm giving you the high, high um, level view of this. And then after they finished it, there was a, a, a finalizing and, and completing of the temple, which was an additional 10 years. 1 Kings 6, 38, 1 Kings 7, 51 talks about that, which is a grand total of 601 years. Um, but then there was, in the book of Judges, during um, this uh, sort of time period, uh, during that time period, if you remember, um, one of the things you Bible theologians know is there were the years, they were called the years of servitude. And what was that all about? Do you remember in the book of Judges when the children of Israel, they did that which was right in their own sight? Um, and the Lord would give them over to these nations and they were literally subservient to um, these nations. And man, we could go into the depths of this. Eight years uh, under Mesopotamia, Judges chapter three, verse eight. Uh, 18 years, they were under servitude of the Moabites, Judges 3, 12 through 14. Uh, for 20 years, the Canaanites, they were subservient to, Judges 4, verses two and three. Like this is all throughout. The Canaanites, the Midianites, the Amorites, the Philistines. Uh, in fact, the Philistines was the longest group. They were subservient to the Philistines uh, for 40 years, Judges 13, verse one. Um, and so you can go through those um, and, um, and you can look up the servitude of years of servitude for the Jews during the judges period. If you do that all together, the years of servitude was 111 years. And so they were not their own nation really at that time. So it's almost like the Lord says, okay, I'm gonna take those out. But you get the 490 years from the Exodus to the, the building and the, um, you know, the dedication of the temple. Okay, are you still with me? Uh, era number three, you have, interestingly enough, the temple to the Edict of Artaxerxes. Um, the, the time of the temple uh, that was built uh, and dedicated in 1 Kings chapter eight, that was 1005 BC. But then the uh, Edict of Artaxerxes to go and rebuild and restore, remember that whole thing of, of uh, the book of Daniel um, and what have you, but also Nehemiah chapter two, verse one, um, it, it, that was 445 BC. So if you do the math, that's 560 years. But how many years would the children of Israel during that time be in captivity? 70 years captive in Babylon. Notice with me, every one of these time periods have 
gaps in them of servitude or because, you, you might put it this way, because of the sin of the Jews, the Lord let them do what they wanna do, but they were, it's almost like you have to subtract the years of servitude or the years they owed. Um, do you remember why um, you know, they, they owed those, those uh, years? Because you know, in 2 Chronicles 36, 21, it says you know, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the word of Jeremiah, until the land enjoyed her Sabbaths. Do you remember that whole thing? That the children of Israel robbed the Lord of the Sabbath on the, on the land itself, a seventh year Sabbath. And it uh, says, uh, for as long as she lay desolate, she, uh, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and 10 years or 70 years. Um, that's why the Jews went into Babylon for 70 years. They owed the Lord those 70 years of servitude in Babylon. Um, so if you do the math in the third section of Israel's history, it also minus the subservient years, 490 years. Are you still with me? Number four on the list from Artaxerxes, the same, you know, same point uh, that we ended on number three, the, the edict of Artaxerxes to the second coming of Christ. Now this is where it gets really interesting because this includes us and our, our lives and our church age that we're living in. And this, uh, this is another name for what we, we've gone over in previous studies, the 70 weeks of Daniel. Remember there in Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Who's Daniel's people? The Jews. And what's thy holy city? Jerusalem. And it says to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. Have we reached that by the way? Has there been an end of sin or an end of transgression? No. So, so this is, you know, when you read the, the 70 weeks that are determined upon Israel, you know, the, the end of that is gonna be uh, the second coming of Christ where he doesn't end with sin, uh, makes reconciliation for iniquity, brings in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. By the way, some people say, that prophecy's over. You guys that are into Bible prophecy, all prophecy's been fulfilled in the Bible, as you know, some of our preterist friends try to promote. And, but if you really read your Bible, you realize, man, there's still a lot of prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled, especially making an end of sin uh, and bringing in an everlasting righteousness. That's gonna happen the second coming of Christ. So the 70-week prophecy of Daniel is, is really an important prophecy for so many reasons. Do you guys remember um, the word, when I, when I say weeks, it's a week of seven years. Um, it's kind of an important word. Shabua is the Hebrew word, um, which means heptad. What's a heptad? Well, it's a week of seven years. Uh, in fact, the Bible uses that shamua word or shabua word um, <clears throat> many times. Like Genesis 29, 27. Remember when Jacob was gonna work you know, for his bride and um, Laban said, fulfill her week and we will give you also the service which you shall see for uh, work for seven other years. But both times the word is Shabua, which is a heptad or a week of seven years. Are you guys with me on that? So when Daniel hears this thing from the, the Lord saying um, 70 heptads or shabuas are determined upon thy people in thy holy city, that means 77 year periods, which is 490 years. Um, you say, Brett, that's great. I get that. The 70 weeks, uh, we, if you didn't go over this with us, we went over this in depth in the book of Daniel, but let me do just a really lightning speed reminder of what the 70 weeks of Daniel. Remember, it's 490 years. But the reason this is interesting to you and I is because we are in this period. You say, that doesn't work out. It does, I'll show you how. So do you remember um, the first 483 years or 69 weeks, as Daniel 9 says, um, would be you know, from the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince. That would be 69 weeks, Daniel was told. 69 sevens, which is 483 years. And if you do the math on that, and this is where, remember Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, you, you should have known even this thy day. How would they have known the day? 70 week prophecy of Daniel from the commandment to go and restore, rebuild Jerusalem, which we know that date, to the commandment, or till Jesus rode on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem, that is the first 483 years, or the 70 week of Daniel. Now, that day they cried out, Hosanna, save now, but like 10 seconds later, they said, crucify him. Uh, we will not have this man reign over us. And so uh, Jesus would be crucified, and that would sort of 
Well, like all the other 490 years, what's the gap? Well, remember the first gaps, uh, you know, we, we saw Ishmael, uh, the sin of Abraham being a gap. The second 490 years, we saw the servitude of nations be a gap there in the book of Judges. Um, the third one, we saw Babylon ca captivity, a gap in the 490 years. But right now, the Jews, we are in this little gap that you see depicted here. What's the gap? Well, as we look at my little timeline here, the church age is from the, the, the rejection of Jesus Christ um, and his death on the cross, basically, if you would, until the day of the Lord, which is, I, I believe, the, gonna include the rapture of the church. Now, there's people that disagree on the order of these things. We're still brothers and sisters in the Lord if we disagree. Don't let that become a point of huge contention. I've noticed people get angry about these things. They shouldn't. Uh, these are things we should be talking about. Um, but I believe the rapture of the church is gonna be the thing that kicks into gear the 70th week of Daniel. Um, and if you remember in the book of Daniel, chapter nine, it says, um, you know, in that 70th week, and it separates it out, it says that's when the, um, the, uh, the power of the, the prince of the people or the, the, the Antichrist character is gonna come and make a covenant with the Jews. And they're gonna, they're gonna be there for seven years. It's the 70th week, the one week of seven years. So after the rapture of the church, um, the variable in the, in the fourth section here is the church age. And it's the longest variable we've seen in Jewish history. For a couple thousand years now, the church has been uh, in, in action. And when that time is over, the day of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Uh, Revelation 11, 25 says, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, 11, 25, I should say, um, then it says all of Israel will be saved. When's that gonna happen? In that 70th week of Daniel, we also call it the tribulation, seven year period. Um, so what we have there is um, um, this same time period determined on Israel, 490 year chunks in Israel's history, minus their years of rebellion and servitude is kind of an interesting thing to look at. You say, well, what does it do for us? Um, well, uh, what it does several things for me. Um, 490 year repeated throughout Israel's history, that's something the rabbis taught. The rabbis taught this as 490 year chunks and they, sh they, they showed it in the same way. So when Jesus says you are to forgive 70 times seven, uh, the number's 490 and the Jews would think, Oh, that's something that's kind of important to them. Those are the years that, that also remind the Jews of their own failures and their own flaws and their mistakes and what they owed God in years and their rebellion toward, toward God. So at the end of each 490 year period, God always rescued his people in each of those eras, which is kind of interesting. In other words, God doesn't just stop at 70 times seven. You might say 70 times seven again and again and again. We see the Lord forgiving Israel 70 times seven and then 70 times seven and then 70 times seven. We see the Lord's mercy and his grace. And that's why we can glibly say, oh, what Jesus kind of means there is continual forgiveness. It's not that we're just saying that, just kind of brushing it by saying it's not 490. It actually is linked to Jewish thought of what God has done. And that's why we see the psalmist say in Psalm 136, one, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures how long? Forever. That's why, you see, that doesn't match with Jesus's 70 times seven, uh, the mercy endures. So you have to kind of dig a little deeper and say, what does that 70 times seven mean? And it really is pointed like the gospel of Matthew, it's pointed at the Jews saying 490 years, 490 years, 490 years, and they're in the, major section now of the last 490 years before the, the coming Messiah would come. Are you guys with me on that? I find great comfort in that. Uh, if you do the math there, it's kind of encouraging that even in our failures, the Lord is faithful to be merciful. And he's gonna do that not only for us, but he's also gonna do that for Israel. Uh, so there you have it, the four 490 year chunks uh, that are very important. Now back to Matthew 19. Uh, that has nothing to do with Matthew 19. Uh, that has everything to do with Matthew chapter 18, but I wanted to kind of cover that before we left it. Um, so <laughs> now um, what we've done here is, um, you know, the Wednesday before Christmas, we covered that heartwarming topic of marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness, uh, if you recall, and that was verses one through 12. And if you missed that and you're interested in those topics, uh, they are very pertinent as, as uh, we need today. Those are important topics, aren't they? Marriage divorce, remarriage, and singleness, and what Jesus had to say about that. Um, but he goes on and starts 
talking about children. And this is where we left off, Matthew 19, verse 13. It says, then were there brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Now reflect back if you would with me as your margin does, uh, you know, 18, chapter 18, uh, verse three, Jesus said, verily I say unto you, except you be converted, become as, a little, as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, that it's not that we're supposed to be childish, we're supposed to be childlike, and we showed, showed the difference between those two. Um, but here's a child in the midst of the people, and Jesus said, this is the model. You know, and, 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 and what does a childlike faith look like? Well, children don't worry about what they're gonna eat tomorrow. They trust their mom and their dad to take care of them, to clothe them, to feed them, to change them. Uh, they're at their mercy. Uh, a child uh, doesn't have any responsibility for sustaining life or anything like that. In the same way, eternal life, we need to become like children and say, Lord, we have nothing. We need to lean on you and trust in you. That's more like childlike faith. So Jesus, Jesus was reminding his disciples about this. And then now um, we see how Jesus uh, loved the little children. And they said, get these kids out of here. But Jesus said, I'll suffer the little children. Notice here what Jesus was doing, but also notice with me what Jesus was not doing. I, I find this interesting. As a former children's pastor of 13 years, uh, I had great care in this topic of what did Jesus do here with the little children? Because I, I think we should model what, especially what a church, what, a, what church, uh, you know, Traditions are, are they just man's traditions or are they biblical traditions? Uh, especially when it comes to children. But what Jesus did do is he would lay his hands on them and pray for these children. Um, that's what he does. All the other ministries Jesus was doing, he was healing people, they were baptizing people, speaking of salvation and the eternal life and the water of life and the light of the world and the salt of the world. But with children, Jesus didn't preach at them or even teach them. He just simply laid his hands on them. I think that's interesting. He did not baptize children. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere do you see children being baptized. Um, that's important, especially if we, if we say infants. Uh, you know, and infant baptism is something we should be kind of concerned about. Um, we talked about this recently, but let me just kind of re reiterate this because some of you were raised in traditions um, and I'm just gonna say this, well-meaning traditions. I don't think that anybody sat around and thought, let's baptize children. <laughs> like, was that something they were, was it an evil thing? No, I think they were, it was well-meaning parents and, and you know, priests and maybe even popes that uh, started making these edicts about uh, infant baptism. Um, uh, but but we'll talk about this. What do we see? We don't see children or babies being baptized. Um, this is kind of an important thing. Water baptism by immersion is a step of obedience after an expression of faith in Christ. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? And Philip said, yes, here's water. What keeps you from being baptized? Well, if you believe that, then you can be baptized. And a baby doesn't have an opportunity to repent from their sins, nor do they even know that they're a sinner yet. Oh, they will but they're not ready yet to repent. Uh, you got, that's part, one of the things you'll notice, look it up, how many times the word baptism is tied to the concept of repentance. Repent and be baptized over and over and over in the Bible. And so that's why I feel like we, well-meaning, uh, but we sort of do our, our babies a disservice. I said, you've already been baptized, uh, Junior. And then what happens is that kid grows up and realizes what a horrible sinner they are. And they think, man, I wish I could get baptized again because I feel like I'm, I'm a sinner. Well, that's, be, uh, by the way, if somebody comes to Athey Creek and says, I'd like to be baptized, I was baptized as an infant, can I be baptized again? No, I think God will be mad at you for that heart uh, to say, uh, you know, you've already been baptized. Is that really, no, no, that's ridiculous. I, I'm, I think that adulthood, and maybe even you have to be careful, I think sometimes teenagers, young people might get baptized too early because even when you're in your young teens, do you really know what a honking sinner you're gonna be? You older people are like, ah, no. You have no idea how bad it gets. 
um, which is kind of an interesting uh, question. Uh, but infant baptism is not a biblical practice. I would challenge anybody to show me where in the Bible you see infants being baptized. What you do see is Jesus laying his hands on the babies, the children, the little ones, and praying for them. Uh, an infant cannot make a conscious decision to obey Christ uh, and understand what even baptism symbolizes, which baptism is largely for the, piece, per, the person who's going to do that act of obedience. Baptism is for obedience. So um, now all that to say, Jesus cares about children, but um, I, I like that he, um, that he uh, lays his hands on them and prays for them. And that, that's the model we see in, in Bible um, is, is um, you know, baptism coming re with repentance, but laying on of hands is praying for a child, no matter what the child's thinking or doing. And I think that's important. Um, so all that to say, Jesus modeled for us what to do, to pray for children. And that's why at Athey Creek, we love to do what we call dedication, baby dedications. Uh, you say, Brett, you haven't done that for a long time. I'll tell you what happened here at Athey Creek. There's something in the water here. <laughs> we have babies coming everywhere. They're, like we have so many babies, it's not even funny. And it was, it was getting to be where we're gonna have to like line up 30 babies and I'll bless you, my child, bless you, bless you, bless you. <laughs> That's not very cool. And so what, we, what we've actually done is divvied it up a little more. And, and by the way, I'm of the opinion that um, it was always, it's one thing to be a little child and sometimes, you know, the six month old, I'd be carrying them up here and they'd look out at you guys and just go, ah, they liked me. Uh, it was you that was the problem, I'm sure of it. <laughs> no, but bring it in front of a huge crowd. But what we actually have found is um, after and between all, all five services, we have, you'll see our pastoral staff with you know, appointments with families, and there'll be a big family, 20, 30 family members circled up right after the service, and our, our leadership comes, and our pastors uh, come and pray, lay hands on the babies, pray for them, dedicate them. I believe it's actually kind of cool, and it's even more intimate in sort of a special way. Um, and so we are doing more you know, baby dedications than we've ever done. Uh, just not in the middle of a service. Well, Brett, I don't know if that's biblical. Well, nowhere in the Bible says you're supposed to dedicate babies. Jesus didn't do a service and then you know, lay hand on children and pray for them. He just was doing that as he went. And I kind of like that. We're, we're sort of modeling, I think, what Jesus taught us to do. Um, now, with all that, one thing that mom and dad, you should be aware of, and this is part of being a parent who cares, um, at what age does a child become accountable for their belief system? Um, we don't really know that. The Bible does sort of indicate that um, there is an age of accountability. Um, uh, and, and um, you know, I wouldn't die on this battle, battlefield because I, I couldn't prove it perfectly, but there's implication. You know, Ezekiel talks about, you know, the soul that sins, it shall die. And Ezekiel 18, 19 through 20 says that, that that child can't blame their parents when they're doing their sinful deeds. The soul that sins, the parents aren't gonna die for that. The soul that sins, it will die. In other words, the, the son shall not bear the iniquities of the father, he goes on to say there in Ezekiel 18. So you say, well, what if a child dies without being baptized? That's where some of these uh, liturgical churches that do infant baptism and stuff, they say, well, we don't want this child to die before they get a chance to be baptized, so we're gonna hurry up the process. Um, well, I believe the Bible does indicate um, that uh, that there's an age of accountability. Isaiah 7, 16 says, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken for both her kings. Um, the Bible acknowledges there's a, there's a time where a child doesn't know, doesn't have um, you know, the right um, development of the, uh, of the brain to understand fully good from evil. Um, now, with that, it makes you wonder, well, then what is the age of accountability? We don't really know. I almost wonder, and this is just my opinion, I'll tell you, it's my opinion, but I almost wonder if that age is different. Um, I, I wonder if the Lord knows a person's development of their brain and knows that there's an age that's, you know, my sister Jenny, she was legitimately saved like, like you don't even, you're not even gonna believe this, but at two and a half, my, my sister Jenny was just, yes, I wanna become a Christian. Like that's my sister. She's super smart and she always has been. And she was way ahead of all of us uh, all the time. Remember the, the picture of Santa I showed you a few weeks ago? That was Jenny going, oh brother, look at my, my brother and sister. It's like she was the cerebral one, but she accepted Jesus at two and a half years old and has never looked back. 
Um, by the way, I have a friend, uh, Dave Lane, who was a pastor for years. I don't know if he's pastoring right now, but, um, but his, I remember he, he was this big hippie back when I was a uh, teenager. Uh, he had hair down to his waist. He was, you know, total hippie, uh, Southern Oregon. One of those guys, you know, moved up to Southern Oregon to grow pot and smoke weed and stuff. That was Dave. But his little two and a half year old daughter went to church with the neighbors, accepted Jesus, went home and led her father to the Lord at two and a half years old. And he became a Christian and a pastor later. Like, like it's an amazing thing. I almost wonder if there's some children that are just early adopters of this knowing good from evil and right from wrong. And, and I think that could be a different number for different people. I almost wonder if there's some 20 year olds that still haven't fully developed, you know, that uh, <laughs> cortex there in the brain is still kind of working that out. Um, <laughs> I know people like that too. Uh, I can't brag about them, um, but uh, you know what I mean, I think. <laughs> They're like four-year-olds, yeah. Uh, but um, but, but um, here's, here's, if you are a parent and you've lost a child, uh, you know, um, and this is a very serious thing. People worry about these things. Um, I remember, you know, that, that word that David said in 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, um, when he was speaking of the baby that died from he and Bathsheba. And, and we know the result was, that was a result of his own sin. Uh, that was a horrible, horrible thing. The baby dies. But he says, David says, but now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Why should I fast now? Can I bring him back again? Answer, no. Um, but I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. What, what's, he, what's David saying? When I die, I'm gonna go back to him. That little child that died, David's gonna see him in heaven. Um, that's that's a, a kind of a fun little tidbit of truth inspired by the Holy Spirit there in 2 Samuel 12, where David acknowledges that that little baby is gonna go to heaven. Um, and, and I gotta say this, and I have to say this carefully because I'm not, I would, if you know me, if you've been around here, I would never condone or encourage in any way, shape or form abortion. We're quite in opposition to abortion. I think it's one of the most horrific things we do as a people group. And we're gonna, if, if the Lord should tarry, we're gonna look back on abortion as worse than slavery in the history of the United States. It's gonna be a horrible, horrible thing, black mark. And we definitely will feel that way standing before God as a, uh, but anyway, but there, there is a tiny bit of comfort I take because those poor little babies, you think all those babies, because we believe if you, if you don't understand why we as Christians are against abortion, the Bible says the baby that is in the mother's womb is not just fetal tissue, it's a person. That's what the Bible defines it as. That's why as we as Christians are very much against abortion and call it murder, because it is. And, and then we, we, you know, we, we could totally, like if I didn't have any hope for those little babies, I, would, I wouldn't even know what to do with myself. But here's the good news. Like David, I, I, I believe those little babies, the millions and millions, 60 million babies since Roe versus Wade at the beginning, 60 million, we're gonna see 60 million people in heaven and people are gonna, who are these people? And they're little babies that were aborted that are gonna make it to heaven. And we'll see them. Like David says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Um, won't it be shocking, all these millions? And that's just in the United States, 60 million. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of babies have been aborted in the world. Um, all of which I believe are gonna go straight to heaven. They will, you know, in some ways, now again, I'm not arguing for abortion, but in some ways I have to say, man, they, had, they bypassed uh, all the hurt and pain and suffering and, you know, all the breakups and rejections and firing and they just bypassed all that, went straight to heaven. Did not pass go, did not collect $200, but they went straight to heaven. Like, I, I kind of am happy for those babies in that sense of that word. So all that to say, there is a tiny bit of redemption, I think, when we think about things as horrible as abortion, the Lord is righteous and he's not gonna allow those babies to uh, suffer for eternity. They're gonna be blessed in all of eternity. Well, I'm off topic again. I better, I better get back to it. Uh, Matthew, back to uh, Matthew 19. So, um, so Jesus says in verse 14, he says, suffer the little children and forbid them not to come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven. Um, this is something that we're supposed to do, make sure that children can come to Jesus. And I have to say at this moment, how thankful I am for our youth ministry, children's ministry. We have a whole huge team of people. Their whole goal is say, we're gonna bring children to Jesus. We're gonna point them to Jesus, teach them about Jesus. And man, they do an amazing job. And, um, and I love this, you know, um, Jesus, he, um, 
he prioritized kids. The disciples pushed them away. And I'm thankful for the AC Creek Children's Ministry who says children are in fact a priority and they do an outstanding job. Um, one of the th reasons why we wanna build a, 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 a finish our church building, because this is only half of it that we built here, um, uh, is because um, our, really our children's ministry is kind of crammed in different places and, and that was always meant to be temporary. Um, and we're crammed everywhere. Uh, if, if you didn't notice tonight, uh, we're just kind of crammed. Uh, but our children are crammed and everything. But one of the main reasons, honestly, is not just to break five services up to be smaller back to three services. That'd be kind of cool. Um, but maybe even more importantly, to really take good care of our children and have enough rooms and space for the babies and for the little ones. And building right now is expensive. It's, it's actually been a challenge. Uh, we're actually in the middle of a uh, federal suit against Clackamas County, if you didn't know that, it's something to be praying about um, because they won't let us build. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where we're at uh, right now. Uh, but we're praying about that and I've, we're not worried about it. The Lord's got it. Uh, we'll see how that all shakes out. Uh, we'll see if our constitution holds up uh, on this particular issue. Can a church build a building without, uh, you know, having to go through extra, you know, um, and a very expensive measures to build a church? And that's gonna be kind of interesting. Be praying about that. But part of that is to say, we want a children's ministry that's ready to roll and giving our kids the best. That's kind of the goal, part of the goal there. Well, um, verse, uh, as we go on there, um, we, we see now after verse 15, um, it says, and behold, one came and said unto him, good master, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? And he said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is one good, none but good, but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He said unto him, which? Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And it says, the young man said unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. <clears throat> what lack I yet? <clears throat> and Jesus said unto him, if thou be perfect, if thou will be perfect, uh, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When his disciples heard it, they were exceeding amazed, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. We looked at this on Sunday, if you missed it, the rich young ruler, we saw that. Jesus doesn't say with man it is improbable. He says with man it is impossible. But then, you know, you think, man, we're all doomed. That's what the disciples are like, we're doomed. Who then can be really saved? But with God, all things are possible. I love that. And if you missed that, it's an important teaching about this rich young ruler and what it means for us today. But the reason I read through that again is we kind of need to re-sync up on the context of the next verses. Um, it goes on in verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? <laughs> Peter's like, what do we get, Lord? Like, like as you can almost see the gears turning in Peter's head. He's, the rich young ruler was told, sell all your possessions. And did you see what Jesus said? Um, Give your, you know, all that you have to the poor and then thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Um, isn't it something that, you know, your wealth on earth does nothing for you, but it's what you do with that, that in a way you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you. And if you have a giving heart, like this rich young ruler should have had, give it away to the poor, then that would have been a way to send it ahead, uh, putting a treasure in heaven. And, um, you know, that's important to have that mindset. Let's set your affection on things above and not on things of this earth. Jesus in the scriptures will tell us over and over again. So, you know, Peter said, well, we have forsaken all. Uh, what do we get? Um, you know, it's funny, even so much did he forsake all. P Peter, remember he even needed to go fishing to get a coin from a fish uh, because he had nothing to pay taxes with. Remember that whole story? Like that's where Peter and those guys are at. But, but Peter still has a wife and a house in Capernaum, so he hasn't forsaken all. 
But what we're gonna see here is Jesus is gonna commend Peter and give him some hope in the next verses, but he's also gonna give a word of caution about this, and that's gonna be in chapter 20. So verse 28, um, Jesus answers Peter's question. It says in verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that you which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit up on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is the economy of God, which is so different than what we tend to think. Depending on if you're the first or the last in this life, um, might have a word of encouragement. You might say, Brad, I've, I don't have much, I'm broke. Well, that could mean in heaven, you're gonna be the rich one. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, basically Jesus kind of throws Peter a bone here by saying, hey, heaven's gonna be awesome for you, so just chill out, Pete. Don't worry about that. Just do what you're called to do here. Um, by the way, this helps us with the book of Revelation. When you get to the book of Revelation, chapter four, you know, it talks about around the throne would be four and 20 or 24 uh, seats or thrones. Um, and they're called elders sitting on these thrones clothed in white raiment. Do you remember those guys in Revelation 4, 4? Um, and they have on their head golden crowns. So this at least might be a hint as to who these elders are, the four and 20 elders, um, and uh, at least half of them. So you have the 12 disciples. Well, Brett, I don't get it. Is Judas sitting on the throne? Probably not. Anybody wanna take a guess? Who's probably the, the 12th apostle that's gonna sit on the thrones? Probably Paul, uh, which is interesting because they took a vote and got the other guy, but uh, he didn't, you never hear from him again. But Paul the apostle is kind of the big gun that comes out. That's a whole nother story. Well, then who are the other 12? Uh, Listen to the Revelation 4.4 teaching. I go into that in depth. And we don't have time for all that tonight. But just to say, I believe that at least half of the four and 20 elders are probably the 12 apostles. So think about what other 12s might you put in thrones. Uh, there's some thoughts for you to kind of chew on. But the, but the main thing we're getting here is, you know, Pete, Peter hears this and we learn that the economy of Jesus, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Um, you know, there's to be a reward for saved people who have sacrificed uh, for Jesus' sake. Um, and I believe many an unknown saint um, who the world never even heard of, never had an Instagram account with 150,000 followers, never uh, was at the front of a church building talking to these large congregations. Um, but I believe there's people that are gonna be in heaven that'll be given first place in the presence of God. They'll be right up there to the throne of God. Um, many outstanding Christian leaders, you know, who receive their acclaim and notoriety and accolades of men. I wonder if some of those guys, and maybe myself included, will be off with binoculars going, man, who are those people way up there at the throne? And they're the people that didn't get accolades in this life, because it's not about that. What a waste of time. Um, you, know, you know, Jesus talked to those guys that wanted to be seen sitting on the important chairs there in the temple. And she said, they have their reward. That's what they get. Pat on the back, people saying, wow, you're amazing. That's it. But there's gonna be people who are prayer warriors in their closet praying and doing battle spiritually. There's gonna be people who are sharing Jesus with people at work, just one-on-one -on -one in, in a very quiet, uh, not a big hoopla kind of reward type way, but just in quietness but in sincerity, and that's gonna be measured out in heaven. And it turns out that in God's economy, the first are gonna be last, and the last are gonna be first. Um, I think many, many people are gonna be shocked when we get to heaven to see the economy of heaven. Um, and I think that's a glorious picture, by the way. I, I think heaven's gonna be a wonderful place. What a wonderful picture this paints for us that Jesus is gonna reward those. Now, this first shall be last, last shall be first. We even get a little more commentary on that um, in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, and we'll just go over this first part of Matthew 20 because it does sort of link up with what Jesus just said in verses uh, uh, one and onward. So Matthew chapter 20 says in verse one, for the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder 
uh, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, but we'll stop there just for a second. There's a few words here that have note. Uh, the word agreed is the Greek word sumphoneo, um, which means contract. So he literally like signs a contract with these first people, makes a bargain, shakes the hand, um, saying you get to work for a day and you get a penny. Now you say a penny, that's not very much. Well, this is a Greek word that is familiar. We went over this a few weeks ago. Um, it's the word denarion. Does anybody remember the value of a denarion? A day's wage, that's right. Um, which in Bible times was about 16 cents. Because remember, 100 days of day's wages was, what was it, six, uh, Carry the one, yeah, whatever. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so that's, uh, that's, that's what we learned. Um, uh, 16 cents, that's what it was, 16 cents. Oh, it was a day's wage back in Bible times. How inflation has changed things today. Um, but, that, so there's this contract and they're given a day's wage. So everything's fair, contractual. That's the picture you need to see there in verse one and two. But it goes on in verse three, it says, and he went out, about um, the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, go ye also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right, I will give you. Um, and they went their way. So notice there's a difference between the first crew that he hired, they had a contract, it was official. But these people was like, yeah, I'll pay whatever you want. But if you want, you can go work and I'll, I'll be fair, trust me, is kind of the idea. Um, now keep in mind uh, in, in this story, the Jews and the Gentiles and the Jewish mind in some of this, it helps you with this. So he doesn't have a contract and he's basically saying, trust me, instead of a contract for a denarion, uh, just, just go and I'll pay what's fair, trust me. That's, that's kind of what he's saying, verse five. And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, why stand you here uh, all the day idle? By the way, it's our culture that says there's eight hours in a work day. Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in a day? Like, and he was in the context of, uh, that's work. I think we're a bunch of wimps. Oh, I put in my 40 hours, oh, suffering, you know. Um, I, I really do worry that we've become so weak in what a day's work is. And, you know, we feel like we worked eight hours. I deserve to come home and just do nothing and put my feet up. And uh, I just think we've become very wimpy. Uh, in Bible times, uh, you were supposed to take a day off, but 12 hours was kind of the typical work day of Bible times. And uh, I just think that's kind of interesting. Um, you know, What's funny about the human brain is when you think it's time to get off of work, then your body will shut down. Have you noticed that? Um, I remember, uh, this is again off track, but um, I was in football uh, from the time I was a freshman all the way through to senior, I, was, uh, I got to start and I was always starting uh, both ways, offense, defense. Of course, at Hidden Valley High School, we were signing up our cheerleaders to play football. Like we, we didn't have anybody. Our team was so weak and small. Um, but so like I was like, in my senior year, I was the only guy over 200 pounds on our whole team, uh, high school football. And we were playing, uh, you know, the equivalent of Medford and Grants Pass and Ashland, all those big schools, our little tiny school, just get crushed. But I was on special teams, kickoff, kickoff return. And you know, that was a little bit taxing, you know, playing a full football game, never stepping off the field. And I did that for four years uh, of all my years in football. But it's funny, at the fourth quarter, man, the clock is ticking and you're like, oh man, I don't know if I could go anymore, man, I'm totally be, but I'll never forget, um, there was one, one time where it was my junior year. Uh, this is glory days uh, talk here. Our, our horribly losing team, Hidden Valley High School, we actually did pretty good. I think we went five and four um, in, our, in our, our, that was our best year for a long, long time. But we, we kind of felt like we won the state championship. And I'll tell you why. Because being such a losing team, you kind of grab what you can. But what it was is our, one of our last games of the year was against Roseburg High School. They're the ones who won the whole state championship that year. We played them and we stumbled out on their field, you know, and if you know back then, what was his name? Was it Thurman Bell, I think was the coach of, he was kind of famous, almost like NFL quality. Um, and we, we just thought we we're gonna get crushed. We went into overtime with Roseburg that year. 
And uh, we lost on, I'm not kidding. It was like, a, it was a call that was questionable, but we played in overtime. But here's what I remember. I remember uh, the Lord showed me something in that game. I remember, you know, after playing, when we realized we were going into overtime, which we had never done before. Um, I felt a renewed energy, man. I felt like it was the beginning of a whole new game. Like I a spring in my step. Uh, I felt no tired or weariness. Why? It's all in the mind. Um, and I think sometimes you've got a lot more left in the fuel tank, but it's all mental uh, when we sort of check out. And uh, boy, how many times has that happened in your own life when you realize, you know, you, you gotta get going again. Be careful on this work week, you know, oh, eight hours, I worked 40 hours this week. <gasps> um, we're a bunch of wimps, everybody. It's time to be, uh, you know, when you get home, you got some more work to do. Um, I say that not just to be mean, but if you're a guy that works 40 hours a week, when you get home, that's the most important part of your day. You shouldn't be kicking your feet up and saying, oh, I deserve quiet. Kids, go to your rooms. No, that's when you go and wrestle with the kids and play games and cook dinner and help with you know, chores around the house. Uh, remember, there's, there's 12 hours in a day. Hello, that's what Jesus said. And that's what goes on right here. Uh, these, I'm, I'm way off course now, <laughs> sorry. Uh, where were we? Oh yeah. So uh, all the way to the 12th hour, you know, the 11th hour of the day, even this last group get one hour of work and said, oh, go, get a, go get to work. So why stand idle? Well, verse seven, they said unto him, because no man hath hired us. Uh, so he said unto them, go also into this vineyard and whatsoever is right, that shall you receive. So he's going again on, um, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, trust me, I'll pay you. So when he was come, verse eight, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, call the laborers and give them their hire because from uh, their hire, beginning from the last to the first. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny or a denarius, which was a day's wage. Everyone received the same. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more uh, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house saying, these last have wrought but one hour and thou hast made them equal to us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I do, uh, do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. And I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So, verse 16, the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Jesus tells this parable that's interesting about these guys getting the pay. Even the guys that worked only an hour at the end of the day and they got the whole day's wage. And, and I remember as a kid thinking, that's not fair. Those other guys worked. Yeah, but they signed a contract. And, and one of the things that we have to remember is that, um, you know, no contract, these guys agreed to, to work and they, they were trusting. There's gonna be some people that are gonna be deathbed salvation. And guess what? They get eternal life, just like you got eternal life. Um, you might've gotten saved at two and a half, like my sister Jenny, uh, and served Christ your whole life. Um, but guess what? Her, she gets to go to heaven for that. But if you died on your deathbed, um, you get to have eternal life also. Um, this is kind of an interesting thing. Three things sort of to notice, and then we'll pack it up for the evening. Um, lessons from the laborers here that I think are important. Number one, I wonder if it's true that we will be surprised when we get to heaven. You know, I think we're gonna realize, you know, the implications, those that have been saved since two and a half and those that have deathbed confessions, they're all gonna make it to heaven. Uh, I think we're gonna be surprised who is there. I think we might even be surprised who's not there. Remember Matthew 7, 22 says, many say unto me, Lord, Lord, in that day, you know, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils uh, in thy name and done many wonderful works? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Uh, you that work iniquity. Like, it's funny how there's sort of a worldly co economy, but I think we're gonna be surprised when we get to heaven. But good news, even, now some of you are saying, well, Brad, I, I'm not gonna accept Jesus and then until my deathbed. The only problem with that plan is you don't know where your deathbed's gonna be. Uh, you might get hit by a semi-truck on the way home tonight. 
and it'll be too late at that point. So that's a little bit of a gamble. But can I just say, truthfully, it's the, the best way to live this life is to serve Jesus. It's not like, oh, I'm gonna serve Jesus then, I guess, because I have to. No, serving Jesus is a get-to. And, and when you realize you're working for Jesus, there's no better path on this earth than the road that leads to heaven. Um, what a waste of a life if you waste your life and then get saved on your deathbed. You, you, you know, you're missing out on the blessings of being a Christ follower. It's not a bummer, it's a blessing. Uh, the second thing we learn um, on this is watch out for jealousy. Those that are gonna have rewards greater than you or seem to be getting rewards. He's God, he can reward whoever he wants and, and however and whenever he wants. Um, don't look at what the Lord's doing in other people. Just understand what he's doing in your life. That's kind of an important thing. I see Christian jealousy uh, in church life uh, that happens and it's ugly. Um, you know, I've seen other pastors jealous of other ministries. I've seen uh, people on church staff uh, members, not at Athey, but jealous of other staff members because they didn't get the position or whatever. Um, you know, we see in the Bible, Miriam, who was jealous of, of Moses. Uh, and Miriam and Aaron, they're like, Moses, who made you the boss of us? You're not the boss of us. And they, you know, they, maybe she saw, um, became jealous, you know, because uh, she, she didn't like Moses' wife, the Ethiopian woman, um, or, or, um, or jealous because the Lord was speaking uh, um, through him and powerful. Maybe she was jealous, but what happened to Miriam when she was jealous of her brother's power? She got leprosy. Um, what's eating at you? Uh, that's what leprosy is a picture of, sin that eats away at your life. And if you are jealous of other people, oh, they get to sing, they get to play, they get to serve. Why did they get to do that? And why does God bless them or that? It's just not a healthy worldview. Um, rejoice when people are blessed. Uh, rejoice when the Lord uses people and rewards them. That's the better way. Those that have been serving longer, watch out for jealousy of newer, younger believers. That happens. So that's number two. Number three, it's never too late to serve. We learned that from the laborers. Even the people at 11 o'clock, they went in and worked for an hour. It's never too late. I wonder if some of you are in your 11th hour of your life. And it's time to serve the Lord. Oh, I should have served when I was younger and now I'm too old. You're never too old to serve. Uh, for those of you that are old and washed up, if you're past 30, <laughs> don't miss the opportunity. Uh, you know, Moses didn't really start serving till he was what, anybody? 80 years old. Caleb was in his 70s and 80s when he did his greatest ministry. Um, Caleb's a hero of the Bible, went after the giants, the sons of Anak, there where the scariest land was. Caleb said, I wanna go there. And he was 80 years old when he said that. That was an amazing thing. I, I could go on, but um, you know, these guys that came in late, they were able to serve and they got the same reward. Don't, don't ever think it's too late to serve the Lord Jesus. Um, now, one of the things about this that you should be aware of, and I can't say this stuff about the payment or the heavenly rewards without mentioning the judgment seat of Christ. There is a thing you should be aware of. And that is when you serve the Lord, one of the things you have to remember is the Lord will judge you and I as Christians at the Bema seat judgment. It's not the judgment seat or the great white throne judgment where you're gonna go to hell. It's a judgment for the believers that are gonna be judged according to their works. Um, 1 Corinthians 3 verses 12 through 15. Remember your good works will be tried by fire and anything that's wood, hay or stubble. Wrong motivation, wrong intentions, serving for yourself, that's gonna be burned up. But anything that was pure, you know, you're serving Jesus for the sake of serving Jesus, it's gonna be gold, silver, and precious stones that will withstand the trial of fire. And then whatever's left there <clears throat> is what you get for reward in heaven. So there's gonna be rewards in heaven for the faithful servant. So if you're the person saying, uh, man, great, so everybody gets to heaven. Well, everybody that serves Jesus gets to go to heaven and believes but there will be rewards for the faithful servant. I don't wanna leave you with that impression that there's no difference between a person. The Bible does talk about the great, uh, pardon me, the Bema seat judgment of, of Christ. Um, you know, we won't be bummed out in heaven. That's something you should always remember. We'll all be thrilled. We'll be glad to be there. Some of you will smell like smoke, but you'll be there. That'll be awesome. <laughs> Um, we're gonna be glad to have you. Um, but some of us will, will, will be there. And, and the question is, what, what kind of rewards will you have? And what will it matter? Um, that's, that's a whole nother uh, question. 
So in conclusion, make sure you're not trying to be self-sufficient like the rich young ruler, believing you can be good enough to make it heaven. You get in, not because you're working all day, you get in by the grace of the, the master. You get in like, um, you know, by, it's impossible apart from God. That's what we learned. This whole section all kind of ties up in a nice, neat package when you realize, man, you must become like a child to inherit the kingdom. It's impossible to do it apart from God, just like a child can't survive apart from his parent. And if we serve and follow Jesus, then we have eternal life through him and we're rewarded. Um, even if you've served in the uh, last seconds of your life. Like all of these things fit together kind of perfectly and it gives us perspective. So may the Lord help us to have a biblical perspective on all these things. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, as we close up this, this section tonight, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to continue to learn and grow. Uh, we love your word and it's, there's so much congruity and so much that fits perfectly together, Lord, as we read the scriptures. Um, but I'm so thankful for your mercy that it endures forever. I'm thankful that you save even to the uttermost, the person who has even rejected you all their life, but repents of their sin and, and comes to know you and accept the work of the cross, that you're gracious and merciful to forgive and then reward. Lord, we're thankful for all the things you do. And I pray that you'd keep us from jealousy of others and the way that you bless them. I pray that we'd rejoice when others are blessed. I pray that we'd have the right heart and the right attitude, Lord, but help us to serve you, to walk with you all of our days. Um, Lord, even as your word says, um, I pray that we'd be those who set our affections on things above and not on this earth. Uh, Lord, give us the eternal picture in mind. Help us not to get too snagged with the temporary and the short lasting things of this life. Help us to think the bigger picture. So bless these, your people who've come out on a rainy, windy night. I pray you reward them for this time in your word, Lord, as you always do. In Jesus' name, amen.